I used to love it when Elizabeth used to come up to do the Bible reading. She would say, good morning, church, with her accent. It was just lovely. Good morning, church. Good morning. I haven't got the same accent, sorry. Our reading this morning is from 1 Kings chapter 17, and we're reading the whole chapter. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead sorry, <coughs> said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kerith ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to, to, to supply with food there. <clears throat> so he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kerith ravine, east of Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in the jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse, and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, "'What do you have against me, man of God? "'Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son?' Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took, him up, he took him from her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was safe <coughs> and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. 
Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. And this is God's precious word. Today we are commencing a four-week study on one of Israel's most dramatic and famous prophets. His name is Elijah. Elijah's story is told between the pages of 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 11, which is that much of the Bible. It's a very small amount, isn't it? However, his story is very significant. The Old Testament closes with reference to Elijah. The the last two verses of the Old Testament say this, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Now, if you know the scriptures, if you know the history of the scriptures, you will know that there is a 400-year time period between the Old and the New Testament. And these are the last two verses at the end of the Old Testament. They make reference to the coming of Elijah. So can you imagine what would be resonating and resounding in people's ears as they awaited the coming Messiah? Elijah, Elijah, when Elijah comes. We then flip over to the New Testament and John the Baptist, who is a little bit like a prophet who has one foot in the Old Testament and one foot in the New. He carries on the tradition of the Old Testament prophets, in particular the tradition of Elijah. He has a prophetic ministry of calling people to repentance and faith. It's exactly what Elijah does. So John kind of has one foot in the old and one foot in the new. And he's pointing the way from the prophets in the past to the coming Messiah. And people thought that John was Elijah. In fact, they asked him, are you Elijah? The same thing happened for Jesus at Jesus' transfiguration. He stood there with Moses and with Elijah And when Jesus sends out his disciples, or he asks his disciples, who do people say I am? One of the first responses is some say, you are Elijah. When Jesus was hanging on the cross and cried out, lemme, lemme sebektani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? People thought that he was calling out to Elijah. So whilst... You know, Elijah's story only takes up such a small portion of Scripture. His ministry resonates through the rest of Scripture, both in the Old and in the New Testament. Needless to say, Elijah is no small character in 
the Scriptures. So it's good for us to spend a little bit of time learning about Elijah, his story, his ministry. And to best understand the ministry of Elijah, we have to start with the context of the time in which he lived. Elijah was a prophet and a miracle worker who lived in the northern kingdom of Israel in the 9th century BC under the reign of King Ahab. And during this period, the northern kingdom had experienced some 19 consecutive evil kings spanning about a 200-year time period. Now, just let this sink in for a moment. This is not just 19 ineffective leaders. This is 19 consecutive evil leaders. Now, you recall that God set his people apart. He took them on a journey. He took them to the promised land, the Israelites. They were supposed to be the people of God. They were supposed to be the salt and the light to all the other nations. They had this string of 19 evil kings. This is God's people we're talking about, ruled by evil kings who turned the hearts of the people away from Yahweh to false idols and to other gods. And these kings led God's people so far away from where he intended them to be. 19 consecutive evil and corrupt leaders. If you read from chapters 1 through to 16, you'll learn about all of those different kings and the evil things that they did. Now, the time in which Elijah's ministry occurred was under the reign of King Ahab. Now, he, of all of the previous 19 kings, was the most evil And he married a woman named Jezebel, a wicked woman, some say the most wicked who ever lived. And under their reign together, the Bible says that Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Now, just let me read to you just these couple of verses from chapter 16 that tell us about Ahab. This is 16 verse 30. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, and you've obviously got to understand what those sins were. We don't have time for that this morning, but he considered those sins trivial, um, the sons of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. But he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. It's hard for you and I to really get our heads around just how corrupt and how evil and how far this evil man had drifted from God's ways. But if we were the original readers of this text, we would get it. And so at least, at the, at the very least, we need to understand just how evil the times were. Uh, the worship, people would sacrifice children to worship gods. People would go into temples and, and do sexual acts with prostitutes as acts of worship. These were disgusting times. 
times of great evil and corruption and wickedness, and God said, enough is enough. And what God did is not raise up an army to take on a king, which is perhaps what you would expect him to do. Rather than raising up an army, he raises up one person, one man. God raises up one man to confront 200 years, 19 consecutive evil kings, the wayward hearts of the people. God raised up one man. But what we're going to see is what God did in that one man in order to be able to do through that one man what he wanted to do. And today's message is all about that, what God wants to do in us first before he can use us to do what he wants to do through us. God works in us so that he can work through us. And we see this right through Scripture. God is very much into working with individual lives he is, yes, is the God of all peoples, of all nations, but he is also the personal God of you and of me. If God raised up Elijah, he might just want to raise up you or I to bring about great kingdom change in evil times. And the first part of Elijah's story is all about the making of the man. It's God's making of a man, or perhaps for you, in, in the way that we're going to interpret it, it's God's making of a woman. What does God do with a man or a woman that he wants to use? Let's start with an understanding of Elijah's name. What does Elijah mean? Well, the first two letters of his name, L, okay, stands for Elohim, or God. I is the personal pronoun for mine, and Yah comes from Jehovah. So put together, very literally, the name Elijah means the Lord is Jehovah, or my God is Jehovah. The Lord is my God. And as we will come to see, Elijah's ministry in many respects was an extension of his name, his his name, the meaning of his name, was the greatest message that he had. By his very name alone, he's making a powerful testimony. And as Elijah goes to approach and confront this evil king, his very name is an affront to the king and the way that the king has misled God's People. Let's pick up the story. So the first time we see Elijah in all of Scripture, as Nigel read, is 1 Kings 17, verse 1. And at the very beginning of this story, we have no background on the prophet. We simply know him as where he's from. That's how he's identified. Verse 1 says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead. He's identified with where he's from. That will soon change. 
The verse continues, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will neither be dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. This was one of the most damaging, strategic, prophetic judgments against the land that you could imagine. This was an agriculturally driven society. Everything in the economy depended upon the rain, upon the weather. And no rain not only meant an economic slowdown, it would mean a complete economic shutdown. There would be unemployment, starvation, a huge amounts of death. Life as it had been known was coming to an end. And this was God's judgment on the wickedness of the evil hearts of the kings and the people who followed. So Elijah stands down King Ahab and says, No more rain until my word. Now you might expect that this kind of prophecy would elicit some kind of uh, argument or fight some kind of reaction, and indeed it may have. But all we read, all we know, all the writer needs us to know from the text is at this point in time, God removes Elijah completely from the presence of King Ahab, from the northern kingdom, from from everywhere where he was. God takes him away to a hiding place. That's kind of the next scene. He takes Elijah into a season of Hiding. Why? Why does God do this? Why doesn't God keep the prophet around? A little bit like you think of Noah. Uh, God, through Noah, said that there was going to be a flood, there was going to be a judgment, and Noah stayed amongst the people and he built a boat, and that was a tangible sign, a reminder to the people of warning that a flood is coming. But in this instance, Elijah gives the word and then he is completely removed. God takes him to a place of hiding. Why does God do this? Because God has so much work to do in Elijah before he can work through Elijah. God takes him to a place of hiding. In this story, we can identify three seasons, somewhat occurring simultaneously, of preparation for the prophet. And the first season that God takes Elijah through is a season of isolated pain. Elijah is very alone. He's got no one else to call out to. He's hurting very privately in a season of hiding. Immediately after Elijah's word of prophecy to King Ahab, we read in verse 2, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. Now this word Kareth is very important The Hebrew meaning of the word kareth means to cut down or to cut off. It means to be cut off from the source, like you would chop down a tree from its trunk, from its root system. And you can almost sense 
that God is saying to Elijah, I'm going to break you. I'm going to take you through a season of cutting you down, of cutting you from the course, the source. I'm going to humble you. I'm going to teach you to become completely dependent on me. I'm going to humble you privately so that I can use you publicly. I'm going to do something in you that's very, very deep so that you can do far more for me than you could have thought or imagined. I'm going to take you down privately so that I can build you up and use you publicly. And as we think about this season of being cut off, of being humbled, of having to become dependent, we might ourselves identify periods in our lives, or maybe an existing season, of being in the Kareth Ravine, of being in a place, a season, of being cut off from what we would consider blessing of God, the presence of God. We may feel as though God is no longer present. We may ask when we find ourselves in a season of testing, in a season of pain, in a season of isolation, we might very naturally ask, God, where are you? But the reality is that oftentimes when we're in these seasons, God is right there with us doing a work inside us that only he can do in his time and in his ways for his purposes. It's not about us. It's not about our comfort and convenience. If we have sold out to Jesus, if we are true disciples, if we sing the song and mean it, I surrender all, then it's not about us. It's not about me. And so often when we find ourselves in these places of pain and isolation and disappointment, when we feel that we've been rejected by other people, maybe we feel we've been rejected by God, we can so easily think about ourselves, poor me, and the pain that I'm experiencing, the isolation that I'm experiencing. And again, that's certainly a very normal human response. But if we have truly surrendered to God, then we will allow him to use whatever he needs to use, to do whatever he needs to do in us, in order that he can do whatever he wants to do through us. Some of you right now might feel as though you're in that place. You're in the Kareth Ravine. And I trust that maybe through this series, God will minister to you and offer you a new perspective, a new set of lenses as to what this season might be about. That God might open your spirit to receive whatever it is that he has for you in this place. Nothing is ever wasted in God's kingdom, in God's economy. Nothing. Nothing. Elijah was there for months, all alone, nobody to talk to, nobody to understand the suffering and the pain and the isolation. 
A.W. Tozer, the great writer, said this, It's doubtful that God can bless a man greatly until he's hurt him deeply. That's an interesting quote, isn't it? It's probably not a quote that we would like so much now. (laughs) And I don't like the image of God hurting a person, but I suppose it's more that God will use painful experiences to do the work within us that he needs to do. In that sense, I like the quote. Sometimes the more God is breaking us or breaking you, the more he's preparing you for whatever he has to come. Now, simultaneously, during this season of isolation, God is also taking Elijah through a season of dependence, complete dependence. You see, Elijah is in a place where he cannot depend on anything at all but God and God alone. In verses 4 to 6, God says, Elijah, you will drink from the brook that I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. In the middle of a drought, there's no water at all, and this brook comes up that Elijah can drink from. Then we've got God's heavenly catering service. These birds go out in the morning and in the evening, and they bring back bread and meat. And they deliver straight to the prophet. What was God doing? God was very clearly, distinctly saying, no matter what, no matter where I take you, no matter what you go through, I will provide. I will provide. I will sustain. I will nourish you. You can count on me to provide for you. Uh, Many of us might find ourselves in a season where something we used to depend on has been taken away. And I think about this congregation. I think for, for many of you, maybe a spouse that you depended on has been taken away. Your, for many of you, your employment has come to an end. That was something that you could depend on to bring provision and, and a sense of accomplishment. For many, that has been taken away. I think about those who have to hand in their driver's license. And, and again, something is taken away. Maybe some of us who are struggling with mental health issues or physical issues that we no longer have the capacity or for a period or for a long period of time where we can do what we used to do. And we might find ourselves having to become more and more dependent. And this is very hard, especially in a society that is so geared towards independence. Kind of the more independent we are and become... In a way, the better we are, right? We don't like receiving lifts from one another. Sometimes the pastoral care team and I have a tough time offering help to people because our natural tendency is to, is to sort of say, it's okay, I've got it covered. Um, but Elijah had no choice. God took him to a place 
where he had no option. There's no mobile phone. There's no tap and go. There's no Woolies or Coles five minutes down the street. He had to depend completely and entirely on God for his provision. And the encouraging thing for us is that no matter how much of our dependence goes or our independence goes and we learn to become more dependent, we can see here that it's a time for us to recognise that we need to become more and more dependent on God. And so maybe for you, rather than fighting the loss of independence, see this as an opportunity to become more dependent on God, more dependent on his people. Because you know how God works so often? He works through his people. Forever and always, God says, I will be your provider. You can trust me. I've got you back. I've got you covered. And here's the cool thing. God did not provide Elijah enough food for two days, for three days, for a week, for a month, he provided him with enough food for the morning and the evening. Not even a day. (laughs) Literally, he had to trust in God, kind of meal by meal, moment by moment. What a way to live. That's a hard way to live, isn't it? Some of us get that better than others. But to live moment by moment, meal by meal, trusting in the providence of God. You see, it's not until we come to this place that God can really start to do a work. The more uh, independent we are, the more dependent we are on our own provision, on our own means, in a way, the less God can do, right? Because we're not relying so much on God, we're relying more on ourselves, on our bank accounts, on, on, on our status, on our title, in our career, whatever it might be. It's so easy for us because our culture and our society prizes these things and, and urges us and encourages us to put our trust in the dollar and in property and, and all of these things. And it's, uh, it, it's easy to get swept into that. It really is. And I don't think any of us are immune from it, but we come to Scripture, which as Christians is, is, is like, guys, this is, this is where we get our, our priorities and our principles, and this is actually how followers of Jesus are meant to live. So we have to keep reorientating ourselves. We have to keep coming to God's Word, looking at what it says, and remembering that God wants us to trust in Him. Finally, God takes Elijah through a season of unconditional obedience. There's isolated pain, there's total dependence, and then there's a season of unconditional obedience. In verses 7 to 9, the story starts to break down. Verse 7 says, Sometime later the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. Now let's put ourselves in the prophet's place. It's been months. You've been in the ravine and this brook has been feeding you, nurturing you, nourishing you daily. 
God tells you to go there and then the brook dries up. God tells you to move on. Elijah is going to learn that the very thing that God used at one point in his life, in his journey, can wither away because God wanted to place within you or within Elijah the courage for the next thing. He didn't want him to stay there forever. And so these seasons that God uses are often not forever. There's a sense of there's a period of time that God's going to do his work and then he's going to move you to the next thing. And Elijah's going to learn that the same God who gives water can take water away. And he might do the same for you and I. But the brook dried up and it gave Elijah the obedience and the courage to go, even when it didn't make sense. God said, go to Zarephath. So Elijah goes, he moves, he travels to this place that would be at least 160 kilometres or so across a barren land. That's a long way by foot. And he comes and he sees this widow who God says is going to provide for him. And he has to humble himself by asking her for a drink and for some food to eat. Now, in and of itself, seems like a very reasonable request. 160 kilometres. You're not going to do that in a day by foot, right? And uh, remember that God's only providing for him, you know, moment by moment. It's not like he had a huge backpack with lots of water and food. So naturally, he would have been famished. He would have been desperate for some, for some water, for some food. So it seems like a very reasonable request, but we have to remember there'd been no rain. <laughs> food and water were sparse. And I imagine the widow looking at him and saying something along the lines of, are you crazy? Are you the only guy that doesn't know it hasn't rained? We're in a drought. And I only have a small amount of water. I have a small amount of flour and oil. And I'm here collecting some sticks. I only have one son. I'm a widow. He's back at home. I'm getting some sticks so I can make a meal. We're going to eat it and we're going to die. Like the pantry is empty. You know, the, 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 the bottle is so empty. There's just this very small amount. And it's like, this is the last meal we're going to eat and you want me to give it to you? seems like a pretty reasonable request but when you actually look at it in the in the context and the situation it's huge but because of what God had been doing in Elijah's heart and Elijah's life he was confidently able to say to her don't be afraid you're not going to die this won't be the last meal that you make he looks at an impossible situation he speaks faith into it because of where he's been. And he says, the flour that you have will not run out and the jar of oil will not run dry. Go back and bake me some bread. And she does. And they ate the bread and the flour doesn't run out and the oil did not run dry and they ate for weeks and months. God, again, supernaturally provides for Elijah. He uses this poor widow to provide for him. It's no longer the ravens, it's the widow and then one day, tragically, the son dies. And understandably, the woman is completely beside herself. And she 
you know, thinks that maybe this is God's judgment on her. And she cries out to Elijah, why did this happen? And Elijah does something that has never before been done in Scripture. He takes the boy to the upper room of the house, lies him on the bed, lies down on top of him, prays to God, Lord, would you raise this boy? And God does. It's the first time we read of a a, a resurrection in the Scriptures. God literally raises this boy and he uses Elijah to do that. And why did this happen? Because Elijah had been to the Kareth Ravine. What we're now going to see is Elijah, we can so easily bypass the preparatory season that God does. We don't like it. There's nothing glossy or flashy about it. We feel like failures. We feel like we've lost, like we've got nothing good to offer. And in fact, it's during that time that God is preparing us for his greatest work. And next week, we're going to see Elijah stand down um, an incredible army and as, as, as we have this kind of duel at Carmel. It's incredible what God does through Elijah because of what he's done in Elijah. Remember in verse 1 how Elijah was described as Elijah the Tishbite. Right at the start of the story, he was known by where he was from. 23 verses later, he's no longer known as where he's from. He's now known by whom he's from. Verse 24, the end of the chapter, the woman said to Elijah, Now I know you are, you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord from your mouth is truth. Maybe God is taking you through a season of isolated pain. Maybe God is taking you through a season of complete dependence. Maybe God is humbling you so that you might become more obedient to him. And one day, someone might come to you and say, now I see, I get it. You're a man of God. You're a woman of God. You're a child of God. And all that pain and isolation and heartache that you went through will make sense. And you'll be able to, in hindsight, look back and see how God used all of that so that he could work in you to do greater things through you. God did it with Elijah. He might just choose to do it through you or I. Let's pray. Lord, we struggle with silence a lot of the time, with isolation, 
with pain, having to be dependent on others. These are things that we can find really hard. It really fights against the grain of what society tries to indoctrinate us with. Society tells us that we need to fill our lives with noise and be busy. We need to have full schedules and we need to be as independent as possible, not rely on others. And yet what we see in your word is just the complete opposite. We started this morning by just considering the significance of this prophet whose name appears right over the pages of Scripture. Because of all that you did in Elijah, you were able to do so much through him. You raised a dead boy. The miracle that you did in Elijah in today's story is about the one. Next week it's about the crowd, but today it's about the one. I'm just wondering if there's one person here today who is spiritually dead. Maybe there's one person here today who needs to be raised to life. And I'm not going to single that person out, but if that's you, I'll just make a personal invitation to you in your time to come and find me And I would love to pray for you that God might raise you. Just invite every person in this room just to open your palms and just hold your hands out. It's a a sign of dependence. It's a posture of humility. It's a posture of wanting to receive. So I just invite you in this moment, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just as naturally as you are breathing in air into your lungs and out of your lungs right now, I just invite you to breathe in and to receive the goodness of God 
He is your provider. He is your sustainer. He is your refuge. He is your guide. He is your shoulder. He is your friend. He is your Lord. He is your Redeemer. He is your Saviour. He is your God. God, in your own way and in your own time, would you please work in each of us in order that you might work through us. We humble ourselves to you We offer our lives to you. And we say, take us and use us for your glory. Amen.